The future. The polar ice caps have melted, covering the Earth with water. Those who survived have adapted to a new world. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are kicking off this project talking about the first two minutes of the movie Waterworld. It begins with the logo for Universal Pictures and it ends with urine being pumped into a filtration machine because why wouldn't you start (laughs) a big movie with P? Why not? Julia. We are starting season five of the Mad Max Minute without a Mad Max movie. Yeah. It took us quite some time to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. There were moments back in 2019 where we thought that Mad Max 5 was not so far off and that we could just tread water until that arrived. Well, with 2020 being what it is, that's not going to happen. And so we were presented with what happens next. Mm -hmm. And we ran through all sorts of ideas and all sorts of plans until we landed on Waterworld. One of the driving forces of Waterworld was how much it's been discussed and asked about over the course of the four seasons with Mad Max. If we had a dollar for each of the times that someone brought up the movie Waterworld, we probably wouldn't need the Patreon. Right, it would cover our fees, for sure. Yeah, it would definitely help us keep the website afloat. But since that didn't happen, we decided that since it's always being brought up and it was shot by Dean Semler, the director of photography for several of the Mad Max movies, mm-hmm. and it is essentially inspired by Road Warrior, it's not officially a Mad Max movie by any stretch of the imagination. I'll get that right out of the way, but... It is post-apocalyptic in the vein of a Mad Max movie, which is enough for us. Absolutely. It is Mad Max with water Mm -hmm. instead of sand. (laughs) (laughs) Which, as I am going to get into in this episode, is essentially the pitch from the original writer to the movie executive that he pitched it to. But before we get into the background of this movie... I think it might be worthwhile discussing our initial exposure to Waterworld. Personally, when this movie came out in 1995, I was, what, eight years old? So I was not in the age demographic for this movie. I did a little bit of research about what came out the weekend that Waterworld did. Waterworld actually did pretty good when it came out. It came out number one. It bumped Apollo 13 out of the number one spot. And then behind Apollo 13, you've got Pocahontas, Clueless, and a movie starring Hugh Grant called Nine Months that I've never heard of. But I was definitely in the age demographic where my parents would have brought me to see Pocahontas instead of Waterworld. I was more in the demographic to go to the theater and watch this movie. I was 14. I remember Apollo 13. I remember. I know the movie Nine Months. Nine Months is a pregnancy reference. Okay. His wife, girlfriend, I don't know, gets pregnant and it's their journey over the nine months. That's what that movie is. So I remember all the movies around it. 
I don't remember specifically going to see this movie in the theater. I kind of doubt that I did. I think I said before on Mad Max that we weren't necessarily movie-going people. We were blockbuster people. Mm -hmm. So there's a very decent chance that we rented this movie from Blockbuster, maybe even on its release weekend. But I definitely remember seeing this movie in the 90s. I don't remember ever renting Waterworld from Blockbuster, but I definitely remember seeing Waterworld as part of that Sunday afternoon UHF programming wasteland where they have no original stuff to put on the TV. So they just run old movies and they make a big deal when one movie is being shown for the first time. It is its network premiere or something like that. And that was where I was first exposed to Waterworld. And of course, seeing all of the Mad Max movies in that same format, I saw Waterworld as, oh, hey, it's just more of that genre that I like. And so watching it with commercial breaks and edited for TV and not in the original format it was supposed to be in, I enjoyed it immensely. And it got tossed in the pile of Mad Max-ish stuff for me. I remember enjoying it, not necessarily immensely. My memory of it, I think, cast the movie in a better light than what I realized it really was when we watched it recently. Watching it recently with a grown-up's eyes, the Mariner is just such an unenjoyable character. (laughs) (laughs) That the premise, which I really enjoy, that is right up my alley. Post-apocalyptic stuff, oh, I love it so much. I love disaster movies. The Mariner just kind of ruins it for me. He, for me, makes this movie less enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was the case when I was a kid. I was so enamored when it came to this movie with... The set pieces like the Atoll, like the Exxon Valdez, and the mechanical nature of the Mariner's Trimoran, that all of the other stuff fell to the wayside. I was all about the stuff and the things and the transformations and stuff rushing around. I was all in for the action of this movie in the 90s, for sure. And it's only as an adult that I've come to realize, wow, this guy really is a sourpuss. (laughs) But getting into the actual structure of this movie, there exists the original theatrical cut of this movie, there is an extended cut, and then there is something called the Ulysses cut. And we have decided to break down the Ulysses cut. It is a couple minutes shy of three hours. It brings back all of the deleted scenes and also extends out some scenes. And it is the perfect length to chunk out into little two-minute chunks and release one episode a week over the course of nearly two years, which should give George Miller plenty of time to catch up and deliver us either Mad Max Wasteland or the Furiosa prequel that everyone's talking about. I hadn't really done the math in my head yet about how long this movie was going to take us. Mm -hmm. So when you just said nearly two years, that's a really long time. It is. That is a really, really long time. and Especially now in our current environment, of 2020, it feels like there is nothing past November. (laughs) The world exists in this time capsule of quarantine and presidential election combinations that will culminate in November, and it feels like there's nothing after that. Mm -hmm. So the thought of planning something for the next two years feels very strange. Yeah. And equally strange is the idea that we are abandoning our one-minute one episode format. We're abandoning our three episode a week 
release format to really drag it out. Yeah, I think for a couple reasons. The big reason for me, honestly, is that I'm not sure Waterworld can really stand up to minute by minute. This movie is not necessarily fast-paced. There's a lot of moments where we're just watching the boat on the water and nothing is happening. And while we have experience with scenes like that and have relished them in the past, there's just a lot of those moments in this movie. Mm -hmm. And it's a better idea to rope in those scenes, like the scene where Helen and Enola are sitting there and pouting because the Mariner cut their hair. That's a very quiet scene. Mm -hmm. And it's just them sitting there pouting at him and him ignoring them. They devote... At least a minute, probably a minute and a half of them scowling at each other over the meat that he's pulled from this sea monster that he fished out of the ocean using himself as bait. Like, there are some slow moments. There are definitely some exciting and fast-paced moments in this movie. Don't get me wrong. It is an action film. But there are parts where it slows down. So there's wisdom in the two-minute per episode format. There is. And I don't think that that is necessarily a criticism of the movie or its editing. In a world where 99% of the earth is covered with water, most of your life is going to be just sitting there, Mm -hmm. waiting for something to happen, waiting to come upon something. Action scenes or dialogue scenes or any sort of human interaction, that's going to be the rare stuff. So I think putting us through those moments is accurate and it kind of puts us in the emotional space that the characters are feeling. Should we... Transition from housekeeping into the actual movie at this point. Yes. And I think I would like to go first with my observation. So you want to start off with the dialogue that we see as the Universal logo goes away and we start zooming in on Earth. As the logo was going away and we start zooming in on Earth is when the water starts rising. Right. And that is my nitpick of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because as the narrator says, it is the future. The polarized caps have melted, covering the earth with water. As a teenager in the 90s, I didn't have the resources available to me to fact check this. I guess I could have asked my science teacher if that was true, but honestly, that didn't even occur to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But now I actually already knew where to go to find out this information, if this is accurate. So I went to NASA. They have a whole section on sea levels rising. So from them, I found out that if all the polarized caps melted, the sea would rise 195 feet. Really? And that's 60 meters. Okay. Now, I have another source that says 224 feet, but I could not trace that back to a scientific source. Yeah. So I'm going with the scientific NASA of 195 feet. Because the 200 some odd feet number is what I heard, and I think the caveat on that statement was if all of the ice on the Earth melted. Not just the polar ice caps, but also like glaciers that are on land. Because glaciers on land, that's where you're going to get a lot of your water being added to the ocean, because if you've got an iceberg floating in the water, all of the water in that iceberg, if it melts completely, it's not going to raise everything. It'll actually lower everything because ice takes up more space than water. Exactly. So NASA says 195 feet. It'll also take 500 years to accomplish that Mm -hmm. at the current rate. So if we speed up, which is inevitable in our current political climate, it could take less. But we're looking at 500 years to accomplish this. 
There was a video that I had already seen previously that my mind immediately went to. It's on YouTube. It's from a YouTube channel called Real Life Lore. Mm -hmm. And they were very good about linking to their sources. So I did go check out a lot of their sources. They were all very scientific, trustworthy. So I highly recommend people go check out this video. We'll put it up on Facebook. Yeah. And I recommend it because it goes through pockets of the coast, like in sections, and talks about who's going to survive and who isn't going to survive. Yeah. Basically, the gist of it is this is going to be catastrophic. 195 feet slash 224 feet is catastrophic. But it's nothing like we see in Waterworld. Mm -hmm. We're talking about... Los Angeles, Seattle, all of Florida is gone. New York, Washington, D.C., Yeah, Boston. the whole coastal seaboard is gone. He did link to a map. It only goes up to 30 feet, but that's like our lifetime kind of timeline. We are okay. Yeah. But we will almost be a coastal town <laughs> in our lifetimes if the polar ice caps melt. Right. It's really a mixed bag. There's going to be a lot of places around the world. Like China is hurting. India is bad. Europe got hit real bad. The English Isles are almost completely gone. It's more like an archipelago now. The Netherlands completely disappear. Yes. I see you found the same video I did. China gets a new inland sea. So it's bad, but it's nowhere near as bad. There's plenty of land left. Mm -hmm. He also points out that Antarctica is now going to be colonizable, arable, farmable land. Mm -hmm. We're trading some land for other land. The major thing that we lose is the established infrastructure that we've been building up for the last hundred or so years. The major population centers are going to produce a lot of displacement. It's an ecological bomb, more or less, because every time floodwaters come in, they mix with pollutants and create all sorts of trouble. Basically, the world flooding to the extent that scientists are talking about is bad. The world flooding to the extent that this movie is talking about is potentially worse. We're talking about the deaths of a lot of freshwater fish species, the contamination and endangering of saltwater fish species because of the pollutants from humans. It's just a really rough situation for everybody. There's also physically not enough water on the planet to do this. Yeah. <laughs> I actually hadn't thought about the freshwater issue. First of all, the salinity level of the ocean is going to go down with the introduction of all the freshwater that is locked up in ice mm -hmm. at the moment. So that's going to screw over saltwater life. And then rising to that level, that's all going to mix with our freshwater lakes, which is going to screw with freshwater life. Mm -hmm. All sea life is in serious trouble. It's the reason why you don't see a lot of recognizable fish in this movie. I'm trying to remember the diving bell scene and how many fish are in that shot. Probably more than I remember. The main element of aquatic life that I can think of here in the first two minutes is that sea monster that tries to eat the mariner. But that's a whole different thing. That's completely made up. So who knows what's going on with that thing? It's probably like a mutant orca or something like that. It is mentioned somewhere in the movie that this is hundreds of years in the future. Yes. Any aquatic life that was able to survive the changed salinity and the changed temperature too. This would happen. The earth would have to go up by a couple of degrees that would change everything. Mm -hmm. so 
any aquatic life that was able to survive by now would have adapted. As far as the water level is concerned, there is a Starlog interview from 1995 where the author of this movie, Peter Rader, he was interviewed to talk about this movie, and he admitted in the article that there's nowhere near enough water to go up this high, and so he was throwing out, well, instead of a rise of 200 feet, I tried to imagine if it was a rise of 12,000 feet. And that number stuck out to me because there are a lot of naturally occurring peaks in the United States alone, not to mention the rest of the world, that are higher than 12,000 feet. Coincidentally, you're wearing a t-shirt right now. I know it's audio. (laughs) Mentioning what people are wearing isn't great for the listener, but you're wearing a t-shirt from Mount Evans, Colorado, which is listed as 14,270 feet. Mount Evans would be over 2,000 feet above sea level if the oceans rose by 12,000 feet. Yeah, I remember this is from our trip to Denver to the Minute by Minute convention in 18? Yeah, that sounds about right. And I remember learning that the mountains outside of Denver, there's 15, 14,000 footers Mm -hmm. that you can climb. We went to Mount Evans because it's the one you can drive up. Right. (laughs) Suffice it to say, the idea of the entire world being flooded so that the only amount of land that's still above the sea level is Mount Everest is a suspension of disbelief. And it is the first, but it is by far not the last instance where you have to (laughs) suspend your disbelief to make this movie work. This is the fundamental moment. Most people who are watching this movie, aside from 14-year-olds who don't really know any better, most people realize that there is not enough water on this planet to cover everything. But we allow that because it would destroy the whole movie. It would make the whole movie ridiculous. Well, we know the whole movie is ridiculous. That's why it's a movie and not Mm -hmm. real life. So we're along for this ride. It's one of those things that is very much like a Mad Max film because right at the onset, you're presented with a scenario that if you're not willing to get on board with the scenario, the rest of the movie will not work for you. Mm -hmm. If you are sitting down to watch Road Warrior for the first time and you can't get on board with the fact that society destroyed itself because they didn't have gas for their cars, then I'm sorry, you're probably not going to have a good time with the rest of the movie. It's almost a filter to the movie. (laughs) Yes. If you can't get past this point, then this movie isn't for you. And don't waste your time. Abandon all sense of reality, ye who enter here. Yes. (laughs) Would you like to hear the tale of the making of this movie? Oh, I so do. Very much so. Peter Rader, who I mentioned earlier, is the writer of this film. He is a 1983 Harvard graduate And he, like most of the people in the world, saw Road Warrior when it came out in 1981. Loved it. He wanted to be a director. He wanted to write movies. And so in 1986, a New Horizon executive called Brad Crevoy brought him into a meeting. And Brad said, Peter, I've got all this money from South Africa. I want to make a Mad Max ripoff. Can you make that happen? And Peter, real early in his career, was like... For the chance to direct, sure, I'll take South African money. Do I want to write a Mad Max ripoff and be like all of those other Italian filmmakers? Not necessarily. But he thought about it, and he came up with a pitch that was basically Mad Max on water, and the executive laughed him out of the room and said, that will take so much money, we are not going to do that. Thank you, goodbye. 
And so Peter Rader went home and said, you know what? I'm going to write it anyway. And so he wrote the script on spec. So that was 1986. Over the next couple of years, a couple different drafts got written just to tweak it here and there. And the script was eventually sold to Lawrence Gordon's Largo Entertainment in 1989. So good job, Peter, making some money off of that stuff. 1991 rolls around, and a couple of different guys named Kevin express interest separately about this script called Waterworld. On one end, you've got Kevin Reynolds, the director, and on one end, you've got Kevin Costner, the actor. So these two had worked together in the past. Reynolds gave Costner his big first starring role in Fandango in 1985. When we get introduced to Kevin Costner a little bit down the road, his biography there says that it was a different movie in 1985 that gave him his big break, but Fandango was starring Kevin Costner, came from Kevin Reynolds. I digress. Aside from Reynolds giving Costner his big break, when Costner decided to direct Dances with Wolves in 1990, Reynolds was one of the guys that came in and helped Kevin Costner with some of the more complicated scenes. So they were able to help each other out a little bit there. The trouble in their relationship arose in 1991 when Kevin Reynolds was directing Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, starring Kevin Costner. They started to experience some creative differences and some friction between them. Kevin Costner really wanted to try out an English accent, and he wanted less Alan Rickman in the movie. And Reynolds was like, you're crazy on both counts. Oh my goodness, less Alan Rickman. I know, right? What? (laughs) More Alan Rickman. So yeah, their relationship was strained by their clashing egos. There was a little bit of friction from the onset there. But apparently they were able to get together for a lunch and hash things out enough that they would agree to work together. So with Costner and Reynolds on the film, the studio brought in David Toohey, as well as a bunch of other shadow writers that didn't necessarily get credit, including Joss Whedon, to work on further rewrites of the script. According to the Starlog interview that I read, the bones of the story stayed the same. Basically, you've got the lone mariner who connects with a woman and her adopted daughter to oppose a warlord and find dry land. That stayed the same. Raider did say that a lot of the more cartoonish elements of his original script were removed because they were just deemed too expensive and logistical nightmares and things like that. The deacon was supposed to have a more Neptune aesthetic. His throne would have been a giant clamshell and... The Mariner would have had a boat where he hid a horse. Whoa. Yeah, he would have had a pet horse. And people are like, no, that is a terrible idea. We're never going to put that on film. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. That also messes with some of the storyline, which parts of the storyline I think are important. Production designer Dennis Gassner scouted around a bunch of different locations and eventually settled on a Hawaiian harbor called Kauaihei. Skip the H so much. Kauaihei? All right, so let's go with Kauai Harbor, but it's on Waimea in Hawaii for locations. Anyway, the area had been hit a little hard by an economic recession due to a sugar plantation closing down, and so the idea of this big production coming to town injected a lot of money into the local economy. However, because local contractors were the only game in town, they were also able to severely gouge the production, which severely hampered keeping costs down on this movie, which was already going to be expensive. Universal budgeted, I think, $100 million initially, and that would balloon out of control by the end of the thing. 
So construction for the film took place in May and June of 1994. Filming began on June 27th. The production had planned for 96 days of shooting, but due to complications, it would take 166. Whoa. Mm-hmm. In order to prevent cuts to the film, Costner forfeited his 15% cut of the gross receipts. He was supposed to get a bunch of money on the back end, and he said, I will give that up in order to keep the studio from slashing and burning things out of the movie. Slashing and burning seems like a good phrase to use because there were several incidences that happened during filming. Uh, Let's see. During filmer, Costner was nearly lost at sea after being blown into open water while tied to a high point on the mast for a helicopter shot. Gene Triplehorn was run over by the trimaran on at least one occasion. Tina Majorino had to be taken ashore three times to be treated for jellyfish stings. Norman Howell, Costner's stunt double, nearly died of an embolism during a deep-sea dive and had to be flown to Honolulu for treatment. And then, on top of all of that, once production was in full swing, medics were treating 40 to 50 employees a day for everything from trips and falls to seasickness, something that Kevin Reynolds, the director, frequently suffered from. And on top of all of that, the atoll set that they built sank during a storm and had to be rebuilt. So after all of that fun in the sun, production moved to Los Angeles in early 1995 and shooting officially wrapped on February 14th, 1995. Amidst all of that, there was a big scandal with Kevin Costner divorcing his wife. There was that whole thing that I didn't want to get into, which was also just a thing that happened. It's a miracle that this movie was made. (laughs) And it makes me think about at what cost movies even should be made. Mm-hmm. How much human suffering <laughs> is worth two hours of entertainment? And I suppose if you look at the entertainment industry too hard, that's true like across the board. The amount that people suffer so that entertainment can be produced. And it's not like it's not worth suffering to produce arts and entertainment. Mm-hmm. But where is the line? Because that's just a lot for people to endure. For a movie. It is. And that's just physical production. Once they were done with shooting, they moved into bros production. You've got extensive visual effects to, let's see, remove ships in the distance, remove the mountains that pop up from Hawaii in the background. There's a lot of tweaking that they had to do. Apparently, they also had to do some visual effects on Kevin Costner's hair, but mostly they had to do visual effects on his gill effects. So just generally to make him look grosser. To, oh, let's see. How did they phrase this? I found another article that I got most of my stuff from, from Entertainment Weekly in July 1995. They said that Kevin Costner's gills were located on his neck as well as behind his ears, and they had the appearance of female anatomy. Oh. So they had to fix that in post-production. Yeah. But aside from all of the post-production work, you also had Costner and Reynolds clashing in the editing room because they had different viewpoints of how they want the movie to come out. And by late April, Reynolds left the production. He just said, fine, if you want it your way, I'm gone. And so with all of that rumbling happening, the tabloids dubbed the project Fishtar and Kevin's Gate as insulting references to 1987's Ishtar, which famously overran its budget, only to fail in the box office, as well as 1980's Heaven's Gate, 
which is another film with a massive budget and scale of production that failed to succeed upon release. So Kevin Costner was heavily, heavily, perhaps even exclusively involved in the editing of this movie. I'd say not exclusively, but you're right about heavily. Is he always like that? Specifically, was he like that on Prince of Thieves as well? I think Kevin Reynolds is the one who is quoted as saying that Kevin Costner should only star in movies that he is also the director of. That way he can always work with his favorite actor and director. Ha, that's funny. Because there is a similarity in the sound of his voice. Mm -hmm. Not just the stark lack of accent, (laughs) but it's like an editing thing. There's a sharpness and a clarity and a volume to his voice that we're not getting from everybody else in the film. And it sounds just like from... Prince of Thieves. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if he's the one steering his vocal editing in that direction. I think when it comes to Kevin Costner, he's always most concerned with how the hero is portrayed mm-hmm. and how their story goes, where the directors he works with are more concerned with how the world looks and is conveyed. Yeah. I mentioned budget earlier. Let's get that out of the way. With a budget of approximately $172 million and a total outlay of $235 million once marketing and distribution costs are factored in. The film grossed $88 million at the North American box office. It did better overseas with $176 million at the foreign box office for a total worldwide of $264 million, which you could argue is technically a profit. However, even though that figure looks good, it does not take into account the percentages of box office gross that theaters retain, which is generally up to half. But factoring home video sales, TV broadcast, right, Blu-ray, DVD, all of that, by now, it's turned to profit 25 years later. Oh, gosh, that's a long time to... It's a slow burn. Wait and hope. (laughs) Reviews for the film were mixed. Critics like Roger Ebert and publications like Washington Post and New York Times gave it a very middle-of-the-road rating. Like, Ebert gave it two out of four stars. And Washington Post and New York Times basically gave it a 50 out of 100. Just very middle-of-the-road. In fact, when Metacritic aggregated all of the scores from the different reviewers, it came out to pretty much a 56 out of 100. That really sounds about right. I think I would give it maybe a 6 out of 10. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, right along with the meta scores. Yeah. The user score on Metacritic is a 3.8 out of 10, but that's based on only 184 ratings. If you go to IMDb, the user rating is higher at 6.2 after nearly 176,000 reviews, with most people giving it in that 6 range that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. What do you give it? Uh, Let's see. If you gave me all four Mad Max movies and dropped Waterworld into the mix, I would probably rate Waterworld after Thunderdome because while Waterworld does a lot of world building, and I love world building, love it. That's why I love Thunderdome so much is because it breathes so much life into the wasteland. I don't think the Mariner can compete with Max. So I would say if I was giving it an out of 10 rating, I'd probably go with a 7 out of 10. Okay. Which is a passing grade in the grand scheme of things. But I have a hard time connecting with the Mariner that I don't have when I try to connect to Max. 
they do have some similarities. Oh, absolutely. Their quietness, their gruffness. Although the Mariner is not as quiet as everybody thinks he is. Their crankiness, their desire to be alone. Do you think we like Max more because you and I, and most of our listeners, I would dare say, have watched from the beginning? I think people, us, our listeners, etc., like Max more because when Max is disgusted with something, he usually grumbles at it. And you can see it on his face that he's disgusted with something, that he's not happy with it. In that regard, Tom Hardy was great with all of the grunting that he did. (laughs) Because when the Mariner is unhappy with a situation, he tells you that he's unhappy with the situation. And that's where a lot of his surliness and curmudgeonly personality comes through. And it makes him hard to like because he just opens his mouth to let you know that he doesn't like the situation or what you're doing. And that can wear on people quite a bit. And I think it's one of the things that makes him more unlikable, for sure. All right. Plus, our first introduction to him is him literally pissing in a cup. (laughs) Yeah, it does feel a little metaphorical in a not good way. Yeah, it's such an interesting way to start. As far as world building goes, I can get on board with it. You're surrounded by seawater. Fresh water is at a premium. You've got to get it where you can. You've got to recycle your own pee. We don't see it in this movie, but I'm sure people have solar stills set up to desalinate the water. You definitely can't have something like they have in Dune where you wear the full body suit and then it takes your sweat and purifies it and lets you recycle it or something like that. You've got to introduce quickly and hand wave away. Yeah, these are how these people haven't died of dehydration. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) I guess it's the second filter on this movie. That we have to establish quick and easy because it's not part of the storyline how they have survived. Mm -hmm. So we see two elements of that survival right in the first, well, four minutes because we won't see the second one until next week. We see him getting fresh water. And then next week we see him growing food. Mm -hmm. But no, this is total bunk. There's no way. Whatever contraption he has built. Yeah is not a real filtration system for making urine safe to drink. You mentioned the idea of a solar still, which I'm sure that there are other creative ways to build them, but the ways that I found online and that were discussed and explained involve digging a hole in the ground. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have to get creative. The biggest thing is that takes time. Mm Mm-hmm. A solar still takes time for the water to evaporate and then condense on to a piece of plastic or whatnot and then get funneled down into a cup. He pumps liquids through a couple of tubes, then comes out with maybe half that amount of liquid at the bottom within a couple of seconds. Yeah, it's not very well explained exactly how this contraption works and... You've got to think, there are contraptions that can take pee and over the course of whatever mechanical or chemical thing is happening, output fresh water. The International Space Station has something like that. You and I both found the ISS pee machine in our research. It is massive. It is massive and it also doesn't work right. Oh, really? Maybe it does work. The phrasing that I saw is that it has been plagued 
with complications since going up. Yeah. And this is a gigantic, multi-million dollar machine. And they've had a hard time keeping it going. Honestly, if NASA can't do it, then who can? Because we don't get a really good shot of this machine. I would like to think that you pour pee into the front, you crank the pump so that it goes through a series of tubes, and eventually the pee ends up in some sort of receptacle. And that receptacle is able to take heat from the air. The water from the pee evaporates and goes through a curved surface down into a cup. And then that cup feeds down through more tubes into the final thing that we see at the bottom at the top of next week's minutes. Okay, I have a scenario that actually might work. Okay, okay let's hear it. So you just described a solar still. Right. In the form of the contraption that we see, that instead of digging a hole underground, having a plastic sheet with a rock or something heavy on top of it so that it forms a cone... And this type of solar still would actually pull liquid from the ground as well. Mm -hmm. So the water evaporates, condenses, and gets funneled to the cup. Okay. If what he is drinking was not this batch of pee, but a previous batch of pee that had time to evaporate the water out of it and condense in some tubes and gather in there, maybe... He only allows himself to drink from it when he has replenished the supply. Mm, That sounds good to me. And that sounds like a good way to pace yourself. It's a good way to illustrate on screen what the narrator says, that those who survived have adapted to a new world, a world of water. (sighs) That brings up something else for me, though. Okay. If you can use this solar still contraption that he's got going on, to filter out pee, why isn't it full of seawater? Exactly. Why does he only get two small mouthfuls out of this batch? Why doesn't he constantly have seawater going in there and storing the clean water? Unless I was educated incorrectly, the way the water cycle works is that water flows down into the ocean, evaporates up out of the ocean, forms clouds, and rains clean water onto the earth. So you can, by the process of evaporation, take the salt out of ocean water. So instead of peeing into your still all the time, why don't you just do exactly like you said Mm -hmm. and pour seawater in there? Maybe he does. I don't know. It could be a dune situation where you have to preserve as much semi-fresh water as you can. If that's the case, I wish... That he would have, and maybe he does, because we really just don't see, a separate one for seawater. Mm-hmm. Because the byproduct of doing that to seawater is salt. Which is great for seasoning. Later on when he catches that sea monster shark thing. Okay, so they eat their fill, which is not that much. What is he supposed to do with the rest of that? That's what the salt is for. Mm-hmm. So I really, really like the idea of doing that with salt. And having your fresh water that keeps you alive Mm -hmm. and healthy and having salt so that you can preserve your food. Yeah. And make it taste better because salt makes everything taste better. So that seems like a good place for us to wrap up for this week. We are going to be coming back every week with a new episode over the next long while. (laughs) Very long while. So if you are brand new to the Mad Max Minute, welcome. If you are a returning listener, thank you for coming back and joining us for this next journey. And be sure to come back next week when we finally get to see all of that pee 
go through the filter, come out the other end and get drank. Because if you're going to see someone peeing, you might as well see someone drinking. I don't know. But we also get to see our first bit of machinery porn, which is just so much fun. <laughs> the Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for episode one of Waterworld. We'll see you next time. Music